Good morning, everybody. Uh, today we're going to be looking at the Old Testament book of Zechariah, and specifically Zechariah's seventh night vision. And this sermon is part eight in our ongoing series through Zechariah, and I'm titling it Heaven Meets Earth, subtitle The Shinar Sender. Heaven Meets Earth, The Shinar Sender. And before we get into the night vision, uh, if you were here last week, you may recall that I began the sermon by talking a little bit about the two lenses through which I've viewed my childhood. Uh, the first lens is the lens through which I viewed my childhood when I was a kid. And the second lens is the lens through which I view my childhood now as an adult. And if you were here, um, last week I was talking about how I've viewed my parents' boundaries and discipline and structure and rules and how I don't view those things the same way now as an adult as I did when I was a kid. And uh, I want to use this same two lenses framework, except this morning I want to talk about how I've viewed the spiritual condition of my family. Okay. Um, so some of you may not know that I grew up as a pastor's kid, of a pastor's kid, meaning both my dad and my Grandpa Mac, Grandpa McFadden, were pastors. And I was really proud of that growing up, especially with my dad. And I loved telling people that my dad's a pastor. Like for me, it was like telling people that my dad was Spider-Man or something. Like I really felt like my dad's being a pastor made him like a kind of superhero. And he was my superhero. And, and I also thought that my dad's being a pastor provided some kind of spiritual security for my family. Um, here was my little boy logic. If my dad is the guy preaching and teaching up on stage, and my dad's the guy doing the counseling, and my dad's the guy visiting the sick in the church, then by extension, my family must be the most Christian family in the church. Like, we're not just Christians. We're super Christians. That's how I really felt. And as a kid, the thought never crossed my mind, never crossed my mind that it would even be possible for one of my family members to not be saved, to not know Christ, because my dad was a pastor. That's how I saw things as a kid. That was the lens through which I viewed the spiritual condition of my family. But now as an adult, here's how I see things. I do believe that God loves families, and I do believe that God blesses families, sometimes from generation to generation. But I do know this, that a person's salvation is entirely between them and God. A person's salvation is entirely between them and God. It can't be transmitted genetically. It doesn't just arise spontaneously. It can't be demanded or coerced, or just presumed, a person's salvation is entirely between them and God. See, it's possible for a person to grow up in a Christian house and go to church uh, every week and sing the songs and pray the prayers and read the Bible and, and even make some kind of profession of faith and yet be utterly lost and not know Christ because they never truly repented of their sin and embraced Jesus wholly for life and salvation. Instead, they clung to their sin 
never submitting to Jesus' authority, never following Jesus in, in humble submission, never bearing any spiritual fruit in their lives. And Matthew chapter 7 tells us that one day all those people will appear before the judgment seat of Christ saying, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this and this and that and all these things in your name? And he will respond, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I never knew you. And a case in point is Friedrich Nietzsche. Friedrich Nietzsche, the guy who famously pronounced in 1882, God is dead, and who's gone down in history as one of the most influential atheists of all times, who grew up as a pastor's kid, of a pastor's kid, just like me. Now, the flip side of this is that it is possible to be known by Christ and to die to sin and to embrace Jesus wholly without having been born into a Christian home. Right? God is sovereign, and he is able to break into even some of the worst situations in, in life and, and to save people by his grace and for his glory. In fact, I know that some of you who are watching this right now would be able to put up your hand and say, yeah, I'm one of those people, and praise God for that. In this morning, in Zechariah's seventh night vision, we're given an example and a warning of what will happen to those who surround themselves with God's people and profess God with their lips and yet unrepentantly cling to their sin instead of the Savior, showing that they never really knew him. But before we look at the passage, let me pray for us now. Lord God, may we behold wondrous things from your holy, inspired, inerrant word this morning. Lord, I thank you that some of the most complicated passages in Scripture are also some of the most fascinating. And I just ask that this morning, this night vision would come alive to us and intrigue us and move us, and that we would understand its message and respond appropriately by giving glory to you. Amen. All right, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to the Old Testament book of Zechariah. Um, if you turn to the New Testament book of Matthew and then turn back a couple books, you'll find Zechariah. And we'll be in chapter 5, verses 5 through 11. Um, now, the truth is that this night vision is like the last five minutes of a three-hour movie. And so if we just jump into it right now without knowing some of the historical context, we're going to be completely lost and this won't make any sense. So let me give you just a brief timeline of uh, uh, some, some events that led up to this, okay? So in 586 BC, God raised up the Babylonians to come against the people of Judah, the Judeans, to conquer them and take them into exile as punishment for their continued rebellion against him. And then in 538 BC, the Judeans were allowed to return to the land of Judah. And then in 536 BC, the Judeans laid the foundation of the new temple because their old one had been destroyed by the Babylonians back in 586. And then in 520 BC, 16 years later, God sends the prophet Haggai to his people. And we learn from Haggai that for the last 16 years, the Judeans have been avoiding the temple 
and haven't even touched it since they laid its foundation. And the reason why is quite chilling, and that is that it appears that they used the wood that had been designated for the rebuilding of the temple, God's house, to build their own houses. And so the Judeans were avoiding God's house because they were avoiding God himself, the one they had robbed to serve themselves. And then a couple months later, God sends the prophet Zechariah to his people. And the very first message that God gives Zechariah to deliver to the Judeans is this, Zechariah chapter 1 verse 3, he says, Return to me, come back to me, and I will return to you. And then Zechariah is given eight night visions in which he's shown incredible symbolic images of the ways heaven will be meeting earth and God will be coming to redeem his people. And in Zechariah's third night vision of the man with the measuring line, God confronts the Judeans in their rebellion again, saying, flee Babylon and escape to Zion. Which was interesting because, of course, the Judeans weren't in Babylon anymore. They had been back in Judah for 18 years. But God was speaking to them figuratively as if they were still there because, in a sense, they were still in a kind of exile. Because while they had returned to their land, they had yet to return to their God, whom the exile was intended to banish them from. And then last week, if you were here, we looked at Zechariah's sixth night vision where God confronted the Judeans in their rebellion once again, but this time in a big way, as we saw the symbolic image of a giant flying curse, a scroll soaring over the land of Judah, and then swooping down into uh, covenant breakers' homes to destroy them, these, to destroy these idolatrous houses they had built from, from stolen wood. And we talked about how this was actually an act of God's redemption. It was an act of God's redemption through disciplinary judgment. We might think of it this way. Uh, God's first act of redemption was in taking his people out of Babylon. But now this second act was in taking Babylon out of his people. So God was pursuing his people through discipline and was rescuing his people through their repentance. And now we come to Zechariah's seventh night vision, which will address those who are unrepentant and who don't desire to part with the Babylon that is still within them. And this night vision unfolds in uh, kind of two scenes. Scene one uh, is wickedness revealed, verses 5 through 8. And scene two is wickedness removed, verses 9 through 11. So wickedness revealed, verses 5 through 8, and then wickedness removed, verses 9 through 11. So let's start with scene one, wickedness revealed. Let me read it. Then the angel who talked with me came forward and said to me, lift your eyes and see what this is that is going out. And I, Zechariah, said, what is it? He said, this is the basket that is going out. And he said, this is their iniquity in all the land. And behold, the leaden cover was lifted, and there was a woman sitting in the basket. And he, the interpreting angel, said, This is wickedness. 
and he thrust her back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So in this first scene, uh, Zachariah's interpreting angel, who's been guiding him through all these night visions, uh, he brings him to a basket. The Hebrew word is actually ephah, which you may have heard of before. It's a unit of volume measurement in the Old Testament. And an ephah would have been the capacity of about five gallons. And then in verse 7, we learn that the basket has a leaden cover, or a cover made of lead. And this word, cover, kikar, is also translated talent. Talent, which you also may have heard of before. It's a unit of weight measurement in the Old Testament. And a talent of lead would have weighed about 75 pounds. And what most commentators point out is that this, this dual description of the basket tells us that God, this, sorry, this dual weight measurement of the basket tells us that God has measured Judah's sin. God has measured Judah's sin, meaning their words and deeds have been weighed in the balance. And this basket has been custom made to fit the exact capacity and proportion of their sin, if that makes sense. Um, and then in verse 6, the angel points Zechariah to this basket and says, this is their iniquity in all the land. And obviously, obviously he's referring to what's inside of the basket. And I can imagine Zechariah cautiously walking over to the basket to see what's inside. And then as the angel lifts this leaden cover, he sees, verse 7, a woman sitting in the basket. And the angel tells him in verse 8, this is wickedness. This is the personification of the Judeans' sin. Now, all this immediately raises a couple questions, like, why is the basket and the woman in the basket so small? I mean, compared to the giant flying curse scroll, which was 30 feet by 15 feet, this basket is tiny, only holding about five gallons. I don't know how big that would be. Not very big, though, and the woman fits inside of it. So why would the size of the basket and the woman be so small if the Judean sin was so large? It seems disproportionate to make that point. And here are three possible explanations. Number one, perhaps the woman fit inside the basket like the genie fit inside Aladdin's lamp. Meaning, maybe we need to not think so rigidly, you know, in terms of constraining the images in this night vision to the laws of physics. Or, number two, perhaps the woman is supposed to represent a physical idol, a little animated uh, figurine representing or symbolizing the Judeans' idolatry. Or, number three, perhaps the Judeans' sin wasn't symbolized by the woman's size, but by her appearance. Meaning, maybe it was her disgusting, demonic nature and vileness which told the story of the Judeans' sin. So, uh, at the end of the day, I, we can't really be certain about the answer, but those are some possible explanations. But another question is, why is wickedness personified as a woman? 
Why is wicked person wickedness personified as a woman? And here are three possible explanations. Number one, perhaps wickedness, harisha, is personified as a woman, isha, because they sound alike in the Hebrew and are both feminine nouns, and so it's just a case of wordplay. Or number two, perhaps wickedness is personified as a woman because in Hebrew poetry, things are often personified as women, like uh, uh, Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly in the book of Proverbs, or uh, all of the references in the Bible to God's people as the daughter of Zion, or as God's wife, or God's bride. Or number three, perhaps wickedness is personified as a woman because God's people have been like an adulterous wife which is what God calls his people in Ezekiel and Hosea. So again, at the end of the day, we can't really be certain about why wickedness is personified as a woman, um, but those are some possible explanations. Uh, and then there's just one more little detail at the end of verse 8. And he thrust her, the woman, back into the basket and thrust down the leaden weight on its opening. So if this angel had to thrust the woman back into the basket... That tells us that she tried to escape, which is kind of scary. But she doesn't escape because this angel, operating by God's power, is stronger than her. This tells us that God's power is stronger than wickedness, stronger than evil, stronger than sin. And then the leaden weight is thrust back down on top of the basket's opening, which shows us that the woman is trapped. She can't escape. She can't contend with God's power. So that's the first scene, wickedness revealed. And then in the second scene, we see wickedness removed, verses 9 through 11. Let me read it. Then I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, two women coming forward. The wind was in their wings. They had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the basket between earth and heaven. Then I said to the angel who talked with me, Where are they taking the basket? He said to me, To the land of Shinar, to build a house for it. And when this is prepared, they will set the basket down there on its base. So this is all really interesting and also raises a few questions for us. One question is, who or what are these two women who are executing God's judgment? And here are three possible explanations. Number one, perhaps these two women are angels who have the wind, the ruach, which can also mean spirit. They have the ruach wind in their wings. But there are a few potential problems with this explanation. First, uh, these two women are not called angels in the text. And second, in every other place in Scripture where angels appear, uh, they appear as men and are described in masculine terms. So if these two women here in Zechariah are angels, this would be the only place in Scripture where this is the case. And third... These women are described as having wings like a stork, which was an unclean animal in Old Testament Levitical law. And so it seems unlikely that God would associate his angels with something that was considered 
unclean. Okay. Number two, second possibility, perhaps these two women are demons. They're unclean spirits with wings like the unclean stork. But there are a couple potential problems with this explanation as well. First, these two women are not called demons in the text. And second, these two women are said to have the Ruach wind in their wings. But this could just mean that they flew in the air. Or maybe this does mean that the Spirit was with them in a sense as God used them to execute his judgment as he did with the godless Babylonians back in 586. And then number three, third possibility, perhaps these two women are the personification of something, just like the woman in the basket is the personification of wickedness. So maybe these two women are the personification of righteousness or God's power or God's justice. So again, at the end of the day, I don't think we can be absolutely certain about the identity of these two women. Um, but honestly, it doesn't really matter because the point in the text is the same no matter what. Um, and that is that these agents of God's judgment are carrying wickedness away from the presence of God to Shinar. Which raises a couple more questions like, number one, where is Shinar? And number two, why is a house being built for these people in Shinar? Or being built for wickedness in Shinar? Um, so first, Shinar is the name of that territory that would eventually become known as Babylon. Uh, in Genesis chapter 11, it's Shinar that is the location where Post-flood humanity comes together and says, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens and we'll make a great name for ourselves. And of course, this was uh, the Tower of Babel or uh, Babylon, the first place recorded in scripture where mankind came together and united to exalt themselves and to declare their own greatness. And if you've read the story, you know how God responds to this uh, self-exaltation. He confuses their languages and then disperses them. He exiles them across the face of the earth. And then in Genesis chapter 12, just after this Tower of Babel incident, we see God calling a pagan man named Abram, who's later renamed Abraham, out of Ur of the Chaldees, which was southern Babylon, into relationship with him. So this was the exact opposite of the exile we saw in the previous chapter. This was Exodus. So just to explain this a bit, um, when God sends someone away from a place, like Adam and Eve, from the Garden of Eden, that's called exile. But when God brings a person or a people out of a place, like the Israelites out of Egypt, that's called Exodus. So exile, Exodus. Okay. Um, and these exile and exodus concepts appear a lot in the Bible in connection with Babylon, right? This is where the Judeans were exiled to in 586 and then exiled from in 538 BC. Now, here's what's really interesting, and this will start to really piece some things together for us. The reason the Judeans were able to return to the land of Judah in 538 BC 
was because a year earlier, in 539 BC, Babylon was utterly destroyed and captured by the Medo-Persians under King Cyrus II. So, at the time of Zechariah's prophesying, Babylon technically doesn't even exist anymore. So, question, why would God call this place to which he's sending wickedness in this night vision, why would he call it Shinar, Babylon? And I think the answer is this. Because throughout the story of Scripture, we see Babylon become a symbol of and synonym for wickedness. That's why God says to the Judeans in Zechariah's third night vision, flee Babylon and escape to Zion. When they had been back in Zion for 18 years and Babylon didn't even exist anymore. And this is why the Apostle Peter addresses his first epistle to the elect exiles and then closes his letter with these words, She who is at Babylon, he's speaking of the church in Rome, She who is at Babylon, who is likewise chosen, sends you greetings. So Peter uses the word Babylon to refer to the wicked Roman Empire in which the elect, God's people, live and, and to which they are captive. And this is why in Revelation chapter 17 verse 5, another woman who is the personification of wickedness appears, and written on her forehead is this, Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. And this is why Martin Luther wrote a book in 1520 titled The Babylonian Captivity of the Church in which he was calling the Roman Catholic Church in the papacy Babylon for holding the church captive to an unbiblical sacramental system. And so I don't think the Shinar being referred to here in this night vision uh, is referring to a geographical location. I think it's symbolic of a spiritual state of wickedness that God is prepared to send the Judeans into. And this time, there's a kind of permanence and finality about it because it says that there's going to be a house built, built there for them, which I think is symbolic of the fact that the Judeans won't just be visitors of this spiritual Shinar. They'll be permanent residents. Uh, and so to summarize this, without the symbolism, I think what God is saying here, what God is doing here is he's giving the Judeans over to their sin for good. He's giving them over to their sin, essentially saying, fine, have at it. My hands are off. I will stop calling you to return. I will stop calling you to repentance. You will be cut off from me and you will die in your sins. I think that's what God is saying here. Um, now, a super important question is this. Who exactly will be sent into this spiritual exile where, where they'll be cut off from God and will die in their sins? Is it all of the Judeans? And the answer is definitely not. 
It's definitely not all of the Judeans because we know that the Messiah was to come through the line of Judah. And so God would and did preserve a remnant of faithful, faithful believers by his grace. And also, it, it doesn't make sense that God would destroy the Judeans' idolatrous houses, as we saw in the last night vision, as an act of his redemption through disciplinary judgment, only to have another idolatrous house built for each one of them in this spiritual Shinar. And so I think this night vision is speaking of those who were born and were raised and who lived in the covenant community of believers, but never actually had a genuine relationship with God themselves. They never actually knew God personally. And God's patience toward them, not wishing that any of them should perish, but that all of them should come to repentance. God's patience toward them has finally run out because of their persistent hardness of heart and unwillingness to submit under his sovereign authority and, and die to their cherished sins. Here's what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 9, verses 6b through 8. For not all, not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel. And not all are spiritual children of Abraham because they are his biological offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. Hear what he's saying there? He's saying that the true Israel are not those who can trace their, their biological lineage back to the patriarchs. The true Israel are those who can trace their spiritual lineage back to the new birth, the point when they were born again by the Holy Spirit according to the promise. Um, in fact, if you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 3. John chapter 3. And we'll read verses, we'll read verses 1 through 8. It says this, Now there was a man of the Pharisees. These were the super religious guys. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. 
Jesus says that no one enters the kingdom of God, let alone sees it, unless they're born again, made spiritually alive by the, by the Spirit of God. And just think how offensive this would have been to hear as a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees were the faithful of the faithful when it came to reading the Bible and singing the songs and praying the prayers and, and, and being very moral and, and righteous and religious and, and keeping God's law. But you hear what Jesus is saying? He's essentially saying the flesh counts for nothing. The flesh counts for nothing. All those times you've read through your Bible, all those songs you've sung, all those prayers you've prayed, and even your personal record of law-keeping, it all means nothing if it is what you are trusting in to approve yourself before the Holy God and save your soul and see his kingdom. Jesus is saying that you must forsake your self-righteousness and start all over by being born again by the Holy Spirit. Jesus also said this in Matthew chapter 23, verse 27. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. You know, God equally hates the sins of self-righteousness and brazen wickedness. He hates when, like the tower builders, we prop ourselves up on our works and on our own notions of greatness, presuming that we can reach heaven that way. Listen to the words of Luke chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He, Jesus, also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple, up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. God is so disgusted by self-righteousness, just as he was so disgusted by that Tower of Babel. God hates self-righteousness. He hates it. And, on the other hand, God hates brazen wickedness. He hates when, like the Judeans, we continually ignore God's warnings against sin and continually silence our consciences and continually rebel against him and just drift through life thinking that we are fine, 
thinking that we are fine because we were born into a believing family and prayed a prayer when we were four years old. That is the spirit of Babylon. That is a spirit of brazen wickedness. And God hates it. And here in Zechariah's night vision, we see that both the unrepentant, self-righteous person and brazenly wicked person will be given over to their sin, exiled to spiritual Shinar, where they will spend the rest of their days, the rest of their miserable days, only storing up for themselves more and more wrath for the day of judgment. So to put it in a sentence, um, I think the message of this night vision is this. God is prepared to give the unrepentant over to their sin. God is prepared to give the unrepentant over to their sin. He's prepared to let their own wickedness take them over completely. Like the parasitic hairworm. Did you learn about this in biology? The parasitic hairworm. It's a kind of uh, enslaver parasite which can quietly grow up inside of a grasshopper and then at a certain point when it's fully matured it can commandeer the grasshopper's brain causing it to seek out water and jump into it unto its own death. Or like the sirens of ancient Greek mythology, those beautiful woman-like creatures who seduced the hearts of sailors with their angelic songs, causing them to crash their ships into the rocks unto death. God is prepared to give the unrepentant over to sin's song and slavery and suicide. Now here's a question. How do you think the Judeans responded to this message? Upon hearing from the prophet Zechariah that God was prepared to give the unrepentant over to their sin and just be done with them, do you think that that, that made them all come, come running back to the Lord crying, Lord, Lord, please, please do not be done with us. Please forgive us, Lord. But we learn about what happened in Matthew chapter 23. Listen to this. This is Jesus speaking. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, If we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you witness against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Therefore I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town so that on you may come all the righteous blood on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood 
of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You did not repent. Hear that? They murdered the prophet Zechariah. They murdered him. They murdered this man who was just being faithful and obedient to God's calling to, uh, to God's sending of him to them as his prophet, showing that they probably would have killed God himself if they had the chance. And do you see the irony here? The Pharisees are saying, oh, no, no, no. We'd never do what our fathers did. We'd never kill one of God's prophets. And the irony is that they're saying this to God's prophet, Jesus Christ, about whom, just a little while after they had spoken this, they would shout, crucify him, crucify him. And that's what they did. They crucified the Lord of glory. They murdered Jesus. But Jesus was not a helpless victim upon the cross. Jesus was a savior on a rescue mission sent from heaven into this world, drowning and dying in sin. Jesus came into our land, into our spiritual shinar, our wickedness. He came and he lived among us and he lived a perfect, sinless, obedient life before God the Father. And then he was taken outside the city of Jerusalem where he bore in his body upon the cross all the sin of his people, the full measure of it. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that upon the cross, Jesus became our sin. Jesus became our sin. Jesus became like that disgusting woman in the basket. And then he carried out our death sentences that our sin deserved. Do you hear this? The message of Zechariah's night vision is that God is going to give his people over to their sin. The message of the gospel is that Jesus was given over to our sin for us. Jesus died in our place when we deserved nothing but hell. And then he was buried, but then rose from the dead three days later in glory. And here's the good news. For all who will repent, who will turn away from Shinar and sin, for all who will repent and will put their trust in Jesus for life and salvation, they'll receive the Holy Spirit and be born again. And they'll be adopted into the family of God, the true Israel, and they'll have their sins forgiven and taken away. And they'll be justified, considered righteous in the eyes of God because of Jesus. 
and when they pass on from this life to the next, they'll be raised like Jesus in glory, with glorified bodies, with no more sin. And so this morning, I want to ask you, what are you trusting in to save you from your sin? What are you trusting in to save you from your sin? Are you trusting in your Christian family? Trusting that because you were raised in a Christian house that you'll be saved from your sin? If you are, then you need to see that you've made your family the Savior. You've made your family the Savior, and the truth is that your family makes a pretty bad Savior because all the members of your family are sinners just like you and are in need of salvation and, and are condemned in their sins apart from Jesus, just like you. And if that's you today, then repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and you'll be adopted into his family where God is your heavenly father and Christ is your faithful husband forever. Are you trusting in your works, your self-righteousness, trusting that because you've done your best to live your life virtuously that you'll be saved from your sin? If you are, then you need to see that you've essentially built yourself a Tower of Babel, a monument to your name and to your greatness, not Jesus' name and Jesus' greatness, and your idle tower cannot save you. You can hide in it and you can shout from its rooftops, God, thank you that I am not like other men. I read the Bible and I sing the songs and I pray the prayers. But one day you will stand in the judgment and you will be traumatized when the holiness of God is revealed and your idol tower will melt before him like wax before the sun. It will melt before him. And if that is you today, repent of your sin and trust in Jesus and you will be covered in the royal robe of Christ's righteousness rather than standing before him one day naked and exposed like that woman in the basket. Are you trusting in a prayer that you prayed when you were a child? Trusting that because you were led by some adult, maybe your parents, maybe your grandparents, to ask Jesus into your heart a long time ago that you'll be saved from your sin? Are you trusting in that? Now, obviously, it's possible to be saved as a child, but if you just prayed a prayer as a child, not really understanding who Jesus is and what sin is and what the gospel is, and that moment in your life is the only thing you can point to as, as evidence that you're saved, you may not be saved. You may not be saved. And if that's you, then today, repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, and you will come to know him truly for the first time. And let me give you just one more. Are you trusting in your desire to go to heaven and to not go to hell 
trusting that because you really don't want to end up in a bad place that you'll be saved from your sins. If you are, then you need to know that that is not a godly desire within you, but just a selfish, self-protective desire. Because if you are only coming to Jesus because you see him as a means to a greater end, you just see him as a stepping stone to some greater thing, something to get you to where you really want to be, that's selfishness. That's not godliness. It's not worshiping Jesus. That's not loving Jesus. That's not coming to Jesus to get Jesus, which is the whole point and the greatest news of the gospel that we can have Christ. We can really be in relationship with God himself. Coming to Jesus just to have heaven and escape hell is like marrying someone just to have sex and escape celibacy. And Jesus sees the intention of our hearts and he will not wed himself to those who don't truly desire him. And if that's you, then today repent of your sin and trust in Jesus, the one who lovingly took the hell that you deserve upon himself to give himself to you. Zechariah's seventh night vision is a hard word. It is a hard word to hear that God is prepared to give the unrepentant over to their sin. But it's this very word which reminds me of the immeasurable love and grace of the God who sent his son to be given over for my sin when I deserved nothing but death. This night vision reminds me of the gospel, and I pray that it reminds you of the gospel too, and that you give glory to God because of it. And this is what we're going to celebrate this morning as we take communion. Uh, we're going to celebrate and remember Jesus' broken body and shed blood on the cross for our sins, which brings us in into communion with God, in which one day will bring us into a great banquet and feast where Christ is at the table and we're at the table together with him too. And so if you have trusted in Jesus for life and salvation, you know that his body was broken, his blood was poured out for you, then I want to invite you to participate with me. You can find some bread and juice. Um, but before we do this, let's just take a minute to um, pray to the Lord in silence, maybe confessing and repenting of sin and, and thanking God for his provision of Christ our Savior. Let's just do that for a minute now.
Let me pray now for the bread. Lord God, I'm reminded now of the manna you sent from heaven to feed your people as they wandered in the wilderness and how it pointed forward to your son, the bread of life, who said, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Lord, we have tasted and we are satisfied and we thank you for the provision of all things we have and enjoy, but mostly your son, Jesus. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 23 and 24 says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's do that now together. Let me pray now for the cup. Lord God, in this cup we drink. Remembering Jesus shed blood on the cross, we remember that we can drink of this cup only because Jesus drank of the cup of your holy wrath. Your word says that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And so we thank you for not sparing your son, but for graciously giving him up for us all. While we were dead in our trespasses and sins, while we were dead in Babylon, apart from you. Lord, you are so gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, and we love you. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 25 and 26 says, In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's do that together now. Let me pray once more. Lord Jesus, you say in John chapter 10 that your sheep hear your voice and you know them and they follow you and you give eternal life to them and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of your hand. And I just pray, Jesus, that everyone listening to this right now has heard your voice this morning through your word and by your spirit. And I pray also that all listening to this are known by you the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep. Lord, I ask that you would continue to make yourself known to us and, and continue to purge from us all remnants of Babylon till you come again to take us home. For your glory alone. Amen. <clears throat>